You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. Today I'm speaking with David Yulin. David is the author most recently of the novel 13 Question Method. His other books include Sidewalking, Coming to Terms with Los Angeles, The Lost Art of Reading, Books and Resistance in a Troubled Time, and Writing Los Angeles, a literary anthology which won a California Book Award. For Library of America, he has edited Didion, the 1960s and 70s, and Didion, the 1980s and 90s. David Yulin is the book's editor of Alta and the former book editor and book critic of the Los Angeles Times. His work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, Harper's, The Paris Review, and The Best American Essays 2020. The recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim, the Lannan Foundation, and Ucross Foundation, as well as a COLA Individual Master Artist Grant from the City of Los Angeles, he is a professor of English at the University of Southern California, where he edits the journal Air Light. On the show, David and I talked about cinematic writing, Chekhov's gun, embodying a protagonist, the literature of disintegration and why he's a fan, tulpas, noir, and much more. Before we bring him on, a few words about Patreon. Please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing. Become a supporter. Any amount helps us to continue bringing the show to you. Since 1998, when Writers on Writing began broadcasting at KUCI-FM on the UC Irvine campus, we've aired a show every week, even during COVID. The show is a volunteer effort with Marie and I hosting and producing and with Travis Barrett as the music and sound editor. A few dollars a month goes far in helping us to continue bringing the show to you. You can also help the show by buying your books at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing, where you will find books by authors who've been on the show as well as other books we like and recommend. And now for my talk with David Yulin. So, David, <laughs> I'm so happy to talk to you about the 13-question method. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it's your first crime novel, and I would love to know what inspired it and how this particular story came about. Uh, it is my first crime novel. I can't say whether I'll write another one or not. I might. Um, uh, I tend to kind of go, I'm a writer who sort of follows whim, my own whims. So this was, but this was, but having said that, this was not a whim. Um, I first began to think about this book probably, uh, probably like 35 years ago. I, you know, I was, um, I discovered noir. I mean, I'd read, Chandler I'd read some um some James M Kane Hammett of course um you know growing up but I first really immersed in in noir when I was in my mid late 20s 
And um, at that point, um, it was like a revelation to me. I was coming out of, you know, I, was, I had been an English major. I was coming out of reading sort of weighty books. I think noir can be quite weighty also. But what struck me about it was its kind of concision and, and pointedness. And also, I tend to share a certain bleak existential um, view of the universe with, with, with what I guess I would call classic noir or hard noir or something like that. So um, I began thinking about it because I was, um, I wanted to do... I, I wanted to write about those kind of elemental human um, emotions. I was I was trying to do that in my other work. And so I started, you know, thinking about it. I didn't really have an idea. I had the title because I knew the song and I liked the song a lot. I didn't have the structure or the idea that I was going to have chapters based on the, the, the 13 questions. But I, I just kind of liked the ambiguity of that title. And then I kind of sat on it for a while. This was when I was still living in New York. In the interim, I moved to Los Angeles. And in the mid-late 90s, I had a friend uh, who was living in bungalow court in um, East Hollywood and we played softball together on the weekends. And one afternoon I was at his house and someone in the courtyard started screaming. And that was the, the and, and I, they're just the, that along with this, I've been kind of carrying this idea of the title for a while. I tend to, books tend to incubate in me inside me for, for a long time. Um, and somehow the two things just came together and I started, um, I started thinking about that as a way to open the book. Um, I did a I did a first pass, or not even a pass. I wrote four or five pages, probably in '99 or 2000, and then in 2015, I really sat down and started working on this book. Right around the time that um, that he who shall not be named came down the golden um, escalator and in, in his in his building. Um, and I, and I, I was curious, I wanted to think about some of those issues. So I wrote about 75 pages. I wrote myself into a corner that I couldn't figure out how to get out of. I put the book down and always meant to return to it. And during the pandemic, when the, just at the very beginning of lockdown, I had been working on a longer memory based book and in the present tense moment of those early days of the pandemic, the idea of memory seems so kind of irrelevant to me, irrelevant to me. Um, that I couldn't really work on that book. And I picked up these pages, read through them. And in that way that sometimes happens, all of a sudden I got to the end of my pages where I'd written myself into the corner and I saw what seemed to be exactly where I wanted the book to go. And then I finished the first draft within, I don't know, probably about four or five months um, at that point. And it just sort of, it just rolled. So, so you, you had written yourself into a corner. Do you remember like what happened when you came back to the pages and you saw a way to go on? I mean, like, how did that come to you? Was it, I don't there know. Was, I, I'm trying, I'm going to try and do this without spoiling anything in the book, but there is a key moment in the center of the book where um, something has to happen. I was resistant to making it happen. Um, and I think I was unconsciously resistant to making it happen or didn't even realize that I could have, let's say permission as a writer to do what I needed to do in, in, um, in that, in that instance. I'm pausing so you can edit this, but it's <laughs> it's when he kills. It's when the murder takes place. Sorry, um, I didn't. Um, so, so in that scene, um, when I came back to it, maybe because I'd had such distance from the pages as I'd originally written them, because it had been four or five years, I sort of didn't. I was. I felt. I, I guess I felt unbound by kind of my own previous sense of of convention or what was expected, and I realized that in some way to make this book work, I was going to have to make a turn that seemed unexpected and that that was going to lead to a whole series of other 
um, other things that happen in the book. A lot of what happens in the back half of the book, because this is right about two, about about 40% in a lot of what happens in the back half of the book grew out of that decision that I made, um, you know, in that, in, in the instant of that reading, this is a very, very vague way of describing something really specific. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I'm glad I read the book because I, you know, there are points, you know, that I wrote in the margin, you know, the midpoint, this is where, you know, and so then I started thinking about it in terms of structure because it does feel structured and, it feels plotted out. And, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like you did the first 75 pages um, along with a plot that you were thinking, it just kind of came out. And then you realized you needed something in that muddled middle. Well, I think what happened was I always knew what the general, you know, the general idea for early on when I was thinking about it, I I never was going to call it this, but in my head, I thought about it a little bit as triple indemnity because um, Kane's obviously a huge influence. Uh, and I really wanted to write about not um, not you know a character who gets caught between two forces, right? Um, and I like the idea of it being an inheritance dispute, and I like the idea of him having to choose, and I like the idea of him making the wrong choice. And th- so that was always kind of baked in as a kind of directive, let's say. It wasn't exactly a structure. There wasn't exactly a, a plot there. I generally don't plot. Um, when I'm writing, I generally try to know as little as possible, or I, I, let me put it this way. I try to know what the atmosphere is and kind of what what questions I'm, I'm going to ask. But in terms of the actual movement of a narrative or the, 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 the plot, uh, I try to know as little as possible when I'm writing the first draft because I want to, um, I want to discover it and then, and then go back. But I also, you know, as you know, I write primarily nonfiction. That's a different matter. You're not, I'm not inventing a story there. I may be kind of shaping a story or selecting what elements I'm going to be using, but I kind of know what the arc of, of the narrative is since it's something that I've either lived or reported or something like that. So in this, it was a bit different. And I did, I definitely feel like, you know, when I hit that wall, I had kind of known what the setup was, but I didn't know what happened after, you know, after the turn and then, and then going into the day month. So I think when I was rereading those pages and, and certainly when I sort of figured out what that turn was, then I began to think more specifically in terms of plot. I did not outline or map out the second half of the book. I just kept writing it. But at a certain point for me in the drafting, it picked up such momentum where I was working on it like three, four hours a day, every day. Um, it was kind of my, it was kind of my reprieve from the world of early COVID that it, you know, I didn't really feel like I had to, cause I felt like I was kind of living in the atmosphere of the book. So I was just kind of following what, what was happening. I was almost like I was watching a movie or a, a, a miniseries or something. I was kind of following what happened one scene or one moment to the next. I do tend to think in terms of scenes and I'm very aware of scenes um, and how one scene leads to the next. So that was part of it. And I definitely think in terms of structure. I mean, it's a book that's called 13 Question Method. It has 13 chapters. Each chapter is 13 pages. I like playing those kinds of Olympian games in some in some way when I can. Um, so I knew that too. And I feel that that structure, that external structure, especially since I had never written a book like this, was really useful in terms of giving me a kind of set of guy of, of guardrails. Um, if I had a 13 page chapter, I, you know, I needed certain things to happen in that chapter. I had to kind of get out of my own way a little bit in terms of um, in terms of making it streamlined and, and, and move. Mm. Well, I would love to hear you read from the 13 question method. 
All right. I will read the very opening, um, but basically the opening two pages of it, um, which I think actually established many of the, the themes um, in, in, in place. So this is uh, the very beginning of the novel. The woman across the courtyard was screaming, ribbons of raving like a coyote's wail. I was in the living room when it started, feet curled beneath me on the sofa. For an instant, her voice sounded predatory, and my heart jolted with adrenaline as if I might be the prey. Then I recognized the modulations, intonations, that elaborate ebb and flow. It was a Saturday night in late July, and the weather had felt tropical for days. Muggy, sultry, heat rising from the pavement in shimmering waves. Out in the canyons, wildfires scorched the dry brush. Control was a word from another lexicon. People say fall is fire season in Southern California, but I think of summer as the meanest time. Tonight, however, the air was clear and I'd had the windows open. Now I got off the couch and went around the room, closing myself in. I switched on some music. The problem with the woman wasn't that she was screaming. It was that I had heard it before. I knew who she was, sort of, which is to say I recognized her face. Angular yet also moon-shaped, a different look each time she caught my eye. Hair just below the shoulders, brown with fading streaks of blue. She lived alone in the unit across the courtyard, mid-thirties, just a couple of years younger than I was. Slender but full-hipped, a little swagger, stylish in her skinny jeans and ankle boots. I noticed stuff like that, especially the boots. It would be a stretch to say she noticed me. No, that's not right. I'm sure she noticed in the way we have of noticing people we don't particularly care about or know. I was just a guy living in another unit, nondescript, going prematurely gray. I had moved here after the implosion of my marriage and the slipstream of that assault. I had been looking not for a home, not for any feeling of belonging, just for a place that I might land. So that first line, the woman across the courtyard was screaming. Was that always the first line? It was always the first line. As I said, when I was, you know, when I when I heard that woman screaming in my friend's bungalow court, it just seemed like a perfect way. And I really, you know, I, I've I've read hundreds of noir novels, and I really wanted to write a novel that was that that was contemporary, but also harkened back to the classic era of '30s, '40s in particular, late '30s in, into the '40s. And all, you know, and it just seemed like a perfect kind of atmospheric line on the one hand. It also set up the drama. It introduced the, you know, two major characters in one sentence. There was a nice economy there. We 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 met the person who was screaming, but we also met that person through the the eyes of the person who was hearing the screaming. And so it kind of it seemed like a um it seemed like a it, you know, it so it, it always was the first line from the moment that there was a first line. Mm. Well, it draws you in as a reader. It's like, oh, <laughs> got to see what's happening with the screaming woman. You mentioned earlier that um, that you saw it as a film, and I, as I was reading, I was thinking about how cinematic it was, and but also there's just such a nice balance um, with an interiority of your character, so that you know we don't know his name, right. which I'm curious about, but. And we don't exactly know what he did for a living. He's not working now, but we don't really know. We know his marriage crumbled and we get details about that. But kind of talk about balancing, you know, scene with that interiority of a character in a novel. I mean, that's why we read novels, right? To get to for get both of those things. For me, that's exactly it. I mean, I, you know, I I I've I think about this, you know, as a reader and as a critic and also as a writer. I 
think plot is really the kind of scaffolding that is necessary to hang the really interesting stuff on, um, which is not to say that plot isn't interesting. But I mean, for me, it's always been the interiority. And that's true, whatever kind of um, fiction I'm reading, whether it's, you know, whether it's it's um, crime fiction, I always like the kind of inner monologue of those characters. Um, or, you know, the, the first person characters, I think of, you know, Philip Marlowe is a classic example. There's that internal Marlowe monologue that's going on. He's certainly reporting on the details of, of the narrative, but it's really his take on it. You know, we're sitting inside of his head um, and seeing how he sees the world. And that's true also of, you know, a lot of the other, you know, other kinds of fiction I like. I'm really interested in, 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 um, in pronounced interior narrators in, in characters who think a lot and who kind of interpret. And often, as in this case, I would say, you know, think too much or maybe a little too smart for his own good in in, in some ways. He thinks himself into a lot of trouble um, where if he was less sort of interior, he would. I also am really drawn to what I would call um, or what I am sort of thinking about is what I, I the, uh, you know, we know about the social novel. I'm really interested in, in the antisocial novel, um, <laughs> which is to say a novel like, you know, Huizman's Against Nature or um, Russell Greenan's It Happened in Boston or novels like that, where we basically are watching from the inside or even participating from the inside as we read in the disintegration of a character. Um, you know, as I said, I do have that kind of bleak existential um outlook on the world another influence on this book obviously is is uh is the stranger um you know a book that i've read many times going back to when i was 18 and really kind of loved the, his internal mom Merceau's internal monologue um as well and so i wanted this book to operate in both those traditions right that classic noir uh, also very streamlined those classic noir novels are really short and i wanted to sort of play within that bounded structure um, but also into, you know, let's call it the, the literature of alienation, which is something that I've, um, you know, written my share of in terms of the nonfiction, but also have been, you know, it's a strange word to use, but deeply consoled by um, over the course <laughs> of my reading life. <laughs> well, I've been thinking about morally ambiguous characters a lot lately, because it seems that those are my favorites in fiction. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is about them that's so compelling. What is it? You know, for me, I think everyone is morally ambiguous. I mean, I, you know, I, I often tell my writing students, like, you know, the worst person in the world has at least one redeeming quality, right? Um, you know, one of the examples, I have a friend, we sort of joke about this, but one of the examples is, you know, Hitler loved his dog, right? You can't say anything much else about Hitler, but he loved his dog. So that makes him a human, which in some ways makes him more frightening and, and scarier. He's not some kind of supernatural monster imposed upon the world. He's a human being who grew up and had, you know, a family and kind of was, you know, created by his psyche and also his circumstance. Um, and so I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in the idea um there's that line in um, the Stanley Tucci show, Inside Man, where he's in prison for having murdered his wife. And someone says, I can't imagine murdering someone. And Tucci's character says, you just haven't met the right person yet, <laughs> um, which is fantastic and also kind of true. We never know what's going to happen. We like to think of ourselves as good people. This narrator, I think, thinks of himself as a good person or as a misunderstood person or a person who's been wronged. Many of maybe those things are true. I have to say, I don't know, but he's also <laughs> someone who has done other things um, that are not categorized, that are not categorized that way. And he goes to great lengths to kind of shield himself from them or explain them away. So I'm really interested in that notion um, in thinking about justification, how we get through the day, the lies we tell ourselves, 
um, the way we can shift blame or responsibility off ourselves onto somebody else because we don't want to deal with it. What are all these coping mechanisms? And I think noir as a genre kind of um, catalyzes that because we are, it's a genre that's based on characters who are, who find themselves in extreme situations. And certainly this character um, perhaps at the beginning of the book, because as you say, and that's intentional also, we don't know his backstory. I wanted to keep that very vague so that the reader could impose whatever they thought his backstory was or could participate in the story making in that sense. Um, but, you know, throughout the book, he does do some pretty morally compromised things. And um, and so noir put, you know, noir as a, as a, as a genre puts characters into that crucible um, which, if you want to explore those ideas, or at least for me, seemed like quite a useful um, container. And yet he is not reprehensible. I mean, I like the guy, you know, I mean, I like him enough to stay with the story, right? It's not like I can't read this. I'm I'm going to put this aside. It's like, oh, this guy's kind of interesting. Like, what is going on? And it keeps it kept me throughout the book. Um, so that's yeah. an interesting contrast, right? Yeah, and I'm glad to hear you say that because I kind of like him too. I mean, I you know I I, I don't, don't think I want to run into him in the wrong place or the wrong time, but I but I do kind of like him also. And part of that I think is you know I didn't want to just have him be. I mean, part of his exist part of his existential despair I think is is universal. Um, part of what he's wrestling with there, part of his loneliness. I mean, he's obviously isolated and lonely, um, and lost i think he's a lost character and i think there's an element again in, in the same way that you know that, that that even the worst people have some attributes i think all of us even the most centered have some experience of that feeling of lostness and i was also really interested in i mean you know obviously because of the title but i was really interested in exploring his fascination with music mm -hmm. and that wasn't and that wasn't a contrivance i mean that was just part that was always part of my plan for the book i'm uh i'm i'm i'm, I'm a kind of I'm sort of big music fan and particularly of, of blues and i was eager to have an opportunity to write about it i didn't want to impose like a set of lectures about it uh, into the case of a narrative but um i feel like that you know he has something he loves you know it, it may be a little abstracted to him he's got trouble dealing with humans but there is something he loves something that moves him something that he feels deeply about and i think that that um helps humanize him in a, in, a, in a lot of ways mm. You know, the music I noticed, I think I underlined every every song or mention of an artist. And um, and I and one thing I've been thinking about a lot is that blues is so noir. I mean, blues and noir go together so well. Um, and, it, you know, you created a really wonderful playlist throughout the book for for people who are interested. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I thought that for a long time for a couple of reasons. I mean, yeah, I think that they 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 are similar in a certain sense because both of them address a kind of balance between ecstasy and despair, right? You know, it's Saturday night, you, we're, we're out, we're going to party and then we're going to have to go back to work or we're going to we're going to put our troubles aside. Mm -hmm. uh, or we're going to frame our troubles by singing about them, or we're going to frame our troubles by writing about them. The other sort of corollary between the two, and I don't want to be too programmatic about this, is that I think both of them originally, um, I mean, very different histories and very different evolutions, but both of them originally are, are, were kind of disposable forms of folk art. I mean, if you think about noir in terms of, you know, the 10 cent paperbacks of the 1940s and 50s, which was a very disposable form of entertainment, it was not 
Um, it was not expected to survive. It was not considered to be, you know, it was not considered to be highbrow or socially acceptable or whatever. And I think, you know, the same is true of blues, both because of the racial component in the sense of a white culture trying to appreciate um, a, a black art form. But it was, I mean, very much a form of, of folk art, very kind of overlooked or dismissed by mainstream culture. Um, for a long time. And so I think there's something really interesting about these forms that get sort of written off, but are actually quite essential. And so I think that both noir and, and the blues share that um, that sensibility. You know, I was at Belchicon a couple of weeks ago and I was talking with a couple of um, crime writers who write noir and love noir, but um, but they their agents don't wanna call it noir. They call it, you know, it's a thriller. It's a whatever thriller. And I'm curious about that because, you know, so many of the thrillers we're reading are really noir, but but that you won't see that word on the flap copy at all. Why that's, so you... that's so interesting. I don't know. I mean, I wonder if it's if I wonder if the agents feel that in some way it it marginalizes it or kind of, you know, if you're not interested in that, it, it you're you're gonna see that word and not um look at it. For me. Um, but again, I'm a I'm a fan. Uh, I'm a fan who wrote a novel. Um, I, I, for me, that, you know, noir, it, that word itself is the draw. I mean, it, you know, I see that on a book. I'm, I, I will take a look. It may not be a book that I end up being interested in, but I'm very interested in noir as an explicit form. And on the flap copy, um, this um, your book is sort of echoing um, David Goodis, Albert Camus. Dorothy Hughes, James Kane. Was Goodis a, a, were you a fan of Goodis or are Goodis. you a fan of Goodis? I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Goodis. Goodis is, uh, is one of my favorite writers, regardless, in or out of genre. Goodis is, um, was a real revelation to me. Mm -hmm. uh, partly, partly because I went to college in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. And I didn't discover him there. I discovered him shortly, about like three or four years after I graduated. Um, and Goodis lived in Philadelphia and wrote about Philadelphia. And Philadelphia, when I was there in the early 1980s, was about, I wouldn't have used this language at that time because I didn't have it, but was about as noir a landscape as I've ever lived in in my life. And so when I first read Goodis, I think the first book of his I read was Black Friday, much of which takes place in a row house in Philadelphia while this criminal gang is is sort of sitting out waiting for um, the weather to change so they can so they can pull off their caper. I lived in a row house in Philadelphia. My friends and I used to joke. I mean, um, sorry for anyone from Philadelphia who's listening, but Philadelphia had the worst weather. We used to call it the used weather warehouse. It was always overcast or rainy or just kind of glum. And so the idea that I was reading a novel about Philadelphia that was zeroing in on exactly, I mean, there's a line, I can't remember it to quote it, but there's a, a line about the weather in Philadelphia in that book that's so perfect. Um, I, I think there was that source of connection. But the other thing is, and that's also what I was trying to do here, is I, the, the, the noir, well, it's probably the literature I love as well, but the noir I love is it doesn't come to any kind of false resolution. And I think that, you know, Goodis's books are, relentlessly brutal and um, bad things happen to good people and keep happening and nobody ever wins. And I think that's true. 
I think that, you know, in the end, well, obviously in the end, we all die. So nobody ever wins. Um, hopefully we don't go through the kind of degradations of those characters before we die, although you never know. Um, but I love the fact that Goodis's books and his characters have no illusions or no preconceptions. They're not, they're not fooling themselves or, or, you know, or the ones who are get a kind of a comeuppance. And so much of the kind of mystery work I've read, you know, so, you know, there's a sense like, you know, people are out on the edge and they're, they may be morally compromised, but in the end, they actually turn out to be like better people than we thought they were. They find themselves in some way. And I always kind of resisted that. Um, and Goodis really taught me, I think, as a, um, as a writer, when, you know, at, me as a reader, him as a writer, reading Goodis, I, I should say, really taught me that you could write a novel that way about a character or a situation that way, where there was no redemption at the end of it, but there could be resolution. There could be a narrative or structural resolution. Um, but it didn't have to be a false uplift. Mm -hmm. And so I think that to that lesson, I mean, hopefully that's what happens in this book. I don't, I, I, I didn't intend for there to be redemption for this character at the end of the book. So you, you, um, it sounds like you write without thinking about the marketplace, you know, because it seems that in the marketplace, it's like all the agents want redemptive endings and hopefulness and, and beauty and light at the end of books. And uh, certainly noir doesn't offer that. I try to write outside. I try to not think of, I mean, I'm in a, I'm, a, I'm lucky in the sense that, you know, um, I was just talking about this in another interview. I'm lucky because I have a full-time teaching job and I, I mean, I want my books to be successful, <laughs> but I don't, I'm not relying on them to right. pay my bills, you know? So I feel that gives me as a writer, the paradox of that is that it gives me a, a you know, a fair amount of freedom. I do, I, you know, I don't have 24 hours a day to, to work on writing because I have, I have another job, but that job uh, allows me the security to kind of write the books I want to write and not really worry too much about the the marketplace. I mean, I do have an agent who I talk, I talk about these things, um, these things with, but I feel like it's, it's, I'm, I'm fortunate in that sense. Um, but yeah, I want the books to, it's a weird way of putting it, but I'm like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm trying to write like this book I wrote for a variety of reasons, but one was I wanted to be in conversation with all those books that we're talking about and all those books that I, that I loved. And I love this genre and I wanted to write a book that expressed sort of, or that illustrated, I guess, um, what I love most about the genre. And so those books, you know, the, the, the goodest books, um, I mean, certainly the stranger, um, Kane's books, you know, double indemnity is like one of the bleakest endings I've ever <laughs> read in a book in my life. Um, or even Mildred Pierce, you know, the last line of Mildred Pierce is let's get blotto. It's not like, you know, there's, there's some kind of resolution, but the, you know, the, the problems aren't solved. And, you know, at the end, the characters are like the hell with it. Let's get drunk. I mean, you know, though, I wanted to kind of, um, I wanted to be in conversation with that vision or that sensibility. So how many words was the manuscript? How many words is this book? It's like 62,000, I think. I love the length of it. And, you know, it's really, I think, pleasant. And, and it enabled me to read it twice before I talk to you. Yeah, I think, well, the concision, I think, as I said, I think it's key to the form. I think the, another thing I'm kind of, I mean, I, I, I don't want it to seem like I'm writing all of this consciously in resistance to things, but I definitely like it. You know, I feel like it's a genre, as I said, it needs to be kind of compact. I kind of, you know, sometimes there's, a, you know, I'll, I'll get a book by a writer I like, and I'll be like, oh, I want to read a, by a noir writer I like. And I'll, I'll say, I want to read this book and it'll be like 350 pages long. I'll read it and I'll enjoy it. But I'm also like, that's a lot of pages for, you know, for something that is concise. 
Um, I also wanted it to be streamlined dramatically. So I didn't want to have like a lot. I mean, there are certainly twists and turns, but I wanted it to kind of follow one narrative because um, I wanted it to be believable in that way. I mean, it reminds me of something Michael Connolly once said in an interview when he was asked about why he had made Harry Bosch, um, you know, because Bosch is inspired by by Marlowe, right? And, and Michael was very heavily influenced by Chandler. And he was asked why Bosch wasn't a private eye, why he was a homicide detective for LAPD. And Michael said, you know, in real life, private eyes are investigating marital infidelity or, you know, um, or, or, or financial um, shenanigans, right? They're not getting murder cases. You know, that was a convention. He was like, I wanted these books to be believable. Who's getting murder cases? A homicide detective for a police department. So, you know, and then he was like, and then you've got the whole structure of the police department, which, which gives him something to push back on and resist against as, as the private eyes did in, in Chandler's, you know, as, as Marlowe and other private eyes do. But he said, you know, I want readers to be able to believe this and think it could unfold in the real world. And I, I that always kind of sat in my head. Um, and so I wanted something similar in, in, in terms of this character in this book. So the 350 page novel, it seems that so many novels are the same length that are coming out. I mean, so many. And do you think, is that, is that what the marketplace wants? And that's why writers are writing the same, you know, these, these novels that often seem padded to me. And I see places that could have been cut, could have been 50 pages shorter, hundred pages shorter. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's what the marketplace bears. I mean, I think one concern of, you know, or one thing I've uh, I, I've observed in terms of, you know, some people I've, I've talked to, you know, as writers get more prominent, they have more leeway in terms of um, re re resisting or rejecting edits. Um, so I think part of it may be that, you know, as, as someone becomes a best-selling writer and, and has, you know, a, a big body of work behind them, I think they have more um, they have more autonomy to say no. Um, I, you know, that's not my situation, but also I, I love being edited, it, you know, part maybe because I work as an editor and I just feel like the collaborative relationship of the writer and the editor when it's working is just, is there's nothing better. Um, so I, you know, and for me, it's always about, um, I mean, it, how would I put it? I mean, Certainly there's plenty of ego involved. Of course, there's no reason, you know, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't want people to like read my book or something like that. You know, I would, I would have a, if I had a, as I, if I had a well-adjusted ego structure, I would have never become a writer, but, but I want, you know, at heart, I want the book to be, to do what it needs to do. And if that means that I have to cut that beautiful 20 page passage that I wrote because it doesn't fit, then I have to cut that beautiful 20 page passage that I wrote because it doesn't fit. I want everything in the book to be in service of the book. Yeah. Well, why is the, the main character unnamed? Why didn't you name him? Um, I didn't want to name him. Well, first of all, I have a I, I kind of have a habit of not naming characters. So in a lot of um, I'm trying to think in most of my short fiction, the characters are unnamed um, in that novella. I wrote Labyrinth that was published about 10 years ago. That character's that narrator is also unnamed. Um, and even in a lot of my essays, I identify people by who they are as opposed to their name, you know, my, my wife, my mother, my son, my friend, that kind of thing. Partly, I think it's, you know, in the nonfiction, certainly it's a, it, it's a, it's a way of giving myself a little distance and also maybe protecting the actual people who are out in the world. Not that they wouldn't be findable if you wanted to look for them, but you know, there's just a little bit of a bit of distance, but I think that that also <clears throat> bleeds into the fiction in, Oh, 
it allows the reader to kind of imagine that character. I mean, again, I really want to, I really want the reader to have to make some decisions here. So I think by not naming the character that, first of all, the character doesn't have a name that's different from the reader. So if it's a first person I, there's nothing to remind them that they're not actually that person. So hopefully it brings them a little bit closer. That's, that's one, that's the desire. Um, but it also kind of makes the character, I think, slightly archetypal in a way. Um, and that was useful for me also, particularly, I think, in um, in this book. How did you embody him so well? I mean, he, you know, he he's curious about this thing that's proposed to him. He keeps telling himself to stop. He can't stop. How did you get so into him? Because it sounds like your life is much more balanced and normal than your <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> Um, yeah, but, you know, but all characters reflect their, their creators in some way. And so, I, I mean, I am definitely, you know, as a, you know, my internal psyche, I can be quite, I can be quite obsessive if I'm, you know, deeply immersed in something. I am curious. I do tend to say yes to too many things. Um, not like what he says yes to, but, uh, but I do tend to say yes to too many things and then kind of find myself immersed in something that I didn't expect. You know, usually I'm talking mostly about a work project, but you know, all of a sudden I'll be like, how did I get here? I thought this was going to be a very simple, straightforward task. And now, you know, six months later, I'm up to my neck in, in, in work I didn't expect. So I think I don't want to make a too direct a correlation, but I think in terms of those, um, psychological tendencies it's not um it's not alien territory um to me. certainly the music as i said is 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 um is related uh to me and again i do tend to feel as part of that existential sort of perspective on the universe i do feel very very strongly a kind of internal sense of isolation um even when i'm surrounded by other people i was you know i, I was telling someone both of my kids were who were adults were around um during Passover and we were all together. The four of us hadn't been together, my wife and the, us and the kids in, I don't know, probably about maybe a year. And there was a moment where like, it, I was so happy having everybody in the same room. I had to leave the room because I couldn't stay. I was, it was too much for me. It was like, I was overwhelmed in some way. So I feel like, you know, that's also a part of my nature. I definitely can be gregarious and, um, social, but there's also a point where I'm like, okay, it's too much. I need to withdraw. And so I was interested in his, I mean, he's definitely not gregarious, but I was definitely interested in like, what happens if withdraw, what happens if you withdraw in, in this extreme way, um, whether because you have to, or because that's just, you know, where you end up, what does that mean? Like, what is, what, what would it be like? What would it be like to be isolated on that level, um, without any outlet? And that too, I think emerged, in the pages that I was writing during lockdown, because of course, you know, that was something we were all kind of reckoning with. Mm. Well, there, there throughout the book, there's, you know, questions of faith and imagination and how real is imagination and then tulpas. Ah, Not all that. And tulpas, like, where did that come from? Well, the tulpas. So when I was in college, I allude to it a little bit in terms of how he first discovers the idea of tulpas. But when I was in college, um, I was an English major and for a senior thesis, I wrote a novel, which never got, I, it got finished, but it, or a draft of it got finished. It was a mess, um, <laughs> but that's okay. I've learned how to write, I learned how to write books by writing a really bad book, I think. But, um, but it was about a character who also was kind of similarly isolated to this character in, in a way. And a friend of mine introduced me to the idea of the tulpa. Um, 
And I thought it was a perfect way for this, this character in that book to have some kind of relationship with someone who may or might, might or might not, might or might not be real. Um, so I wrote a character into the book, uh, not in this way, but I wrote a character into that book whose name was actually Tulpa, who told him that, you know, her parents had been um, interested in, in Eastern mysticism and they had named her for this mystical creature. And she explained to him who it was. And then, you know, over the course of that book, the question was, you know, is she actually a Tulpa or is that just her name? Um, or that was the question I was hoping to address in that book. So that always kind of sat in my head too. And again, I don't I don't want to make this sound too conscious. When I was writing this book, all of a sudden, sometimes what happens for me, and this is, I think, the benefit of not making too many notes, is that you know I'll be writing, and all of a sudden, literally, all of a sudden, like you know, we, you know, within you know I'll, within five lines, I'll be like, all right, this this is where oh the tulpa will be perfect here, or something like that. That's what happened here. I did not have any idea that I was going to reinvoke this figure until probably a line or two before I wrote um, the, before I, be, before I introduced the idea of the Tulpa, which comes in, in, in early in the book. I think in the first chapter, um, the Tulpa, the idea of the Tulpa is introduced. And then as the book progressed, I just thought this is a perfect kind of metaphor for his relationship with the other characters because they're so based on his imagination he has no idea who these people are he has no idea who sylvia is he has no idea who karina is he knows who he has decided they are or the story that he's told about who they are um so even though they're real people in the in the world of the novel and real people to him they are also kind of tulpas these kind of imaginary um beings and so it seemed like a really useful way of framing that that part of the narrative yeah, it was interesting. You know, speaking of um, Sylvia and Karina, well, Karina, her name, did her name come first or did the song Karina, Karina come first? Her name, well, I, I, I mean, I know the song, but I didn't, I I think I named her first and then um, and then remembered the song. Um, they could have been the other way around. I'm an unreliable narrator also. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, there's, I, I think we can say, can we say there's no guns in the, in the book? Can we say that? Well, let's say that. There's no, there's no guns in the book. But there is a Chekhov's gun and actually the boots are, yeah. you know, was that, I imagine that was intentional for her boots because they're on the first page. It was, it became intentional. It wasn't intentional. As I said, when I wrote that first page, I had no idea where this book was going. So I had no idea that that was going to come into play. But, you know, again, for me, the, and this is true of all writing, not just writing a piece of fiction, but from the act of, or the process of writing is just a kind of deepening immersion. So, you know, I start with things, you know, was there some kind of intuitive sense of what might happen? I don't know, perhaps there was. Um, I was trying to establish his character. So the idea of his fascination um with the boots was something that i thought was useful i wanted i wanted to kind of create a little air of deviance for him um that that could then i could then expand um so that was why it was there in the first place but then as the book progressed and i kind of got deeper into it and started to see what i was actually like see what the landscape looked like then um some of those callbacks became or the idea of some of those callbacks arose more consciously what about the shovel that was there very innocently in the beginning? It was. I mean, you know, the sho the shovel is an interesting. It's an interesting question. The shovel was the, the solution to a problem, so um, I couldn't have him buy one because there wasn't time. Um, and I liked the way the the book was flowing. So I actually 
um, back engineered the shovel. The shovel was not there in the first draft. It was added in the, or it came in in the middle of the, when I'm drafting, if I, if something needs, I'll put something in, even if it needs antecedents, I won't go back and fill it in. I'll just keep writing the draft and then I'll go back in the revision. So, you know, in the middle of the book, when I, he needed the shovel, I was like, I put it in and then I had to figure out why he had it. And so in the course of revision, I figured out why he had, I, I, I hope I figured out why he had, or, you know, um, and so I built it into the beginning of the book so that it was there. That's also, I mean, there are a bunch of those things that, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating to me about revising fiction as opposed to anything else is that there are things that, because it's a, because it's a kind of construct, a really constructed universe, there are things that emerge throughout that then need to go, you know, again, you need to go back and kind of reverse engineer it. And so, the shovel was one. There's some others. I won't say what they are because I don't want to, you know, I don't, because I, I don't want to spoil anything, but there were, you know, three or four big things that kind of, you know, I realized in the middle needed to be there. And then I had to figure out how to kind of weave them into the, the early pages so that they had a, a foundation. Talk a little bit about revision, you know, your process of, of revising this book. Well, I think first I revised it three times, I think. Um, so first of all, I should say, I don't show anything to anybody <clears throat> when I'm writing. And I didn't show this book to anybody until I'd done the first revision because I knew that there were those those holes, right? The tulpa, the shovel, et cetera, that needed to kind of you know be be developed or 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 played with. So um, so I finished the draft of the book. I sat and what I I did what I usually do. I, I gave it a couple of weeks. I sat down and the first thing I did was re read it through with a, I like to work with yellow legal pads. So I, I mean, I, I write on a computer, but I like to you know, take notes with, with the yellow legal pad. So I read through the book, you know, with a yellow legal pad in my hand and just made notes on things that I thought needed to be expanded or fixed or, or tweaked. Uh, then I let that sit for another couple another month or two. And then I went back in and with those notes, and hopefully a little bit of forgetting. So I was kind of approaching it a little bit fresh. I went in and started addressing those um, those edits and concerns. And then of course, as I was editing those or making those fixes, other fixes emerged because I was kind of immersing in that process again. And, um, and then I finished that draft. And at that point I sent it, I gave it to my wife. I gave it to a close friend who writes crime fiction and who I always am trading manuscripts with anyway, but I gave it to him, especially because it was his, his genre. Uh, and I sent it to my agent and they all gave me notes. And then I gathered those notes and um, it's hard for me to do a lot of revision during the school year. So I waited till the end of the school year. And then I sat down and basically did another revision of the book, figuring out, um, you know, with both using their notes. And there were a couple of things that I hadn't been able to figure out how to work into the manuscript in the first two passes. And so I specifically focused on that. Usually, um, Carolyn C., who was a great mentor of mine in her book, Making a Literary Life, writes about this. You know, when you finish the draft, you sit down and you make a list of, you know, what's, you know, what needs to be here, what's missing, what's working. And then you kind of work off of that. So I, I feel like my version of this, what I'm describing to you is a kind of modified version um, of that approach. And then, of course, there's the other edit, which is once the book was accepted, the editor of the the editor from the publisher, you know, the editor at the, at the at the press gave me some notes and I did another pass there. There were a couple of questions I had about things that I wanted to be more, you know, 
things I was worried were either not clear or paradoxically too clear. So there were things I really wanted to be ambiguous about. I wanted the reader to not be sure in certain places whether or what, what whether something was actually happening or whether it was happening in the the, the narrator's mind. Um, so we worked on some of those uh, some of those um, passages, kind of be, making trying to make the writing sharper or more specific so that the situation could be less specific, if that makes sense. And then there was the proof notes, um, great copy editor proofer who found all of these great inconsistencies, including the fact that I'd spelled Corinna differently throughout the book and things like that. I mean, those are minor things, but you know, I, those are the kind of details that will pull me out of a book. So I was delighted to have somebody with that kind of sharp eye working on this project. So what, when notes come in from different people, what do you do with them? I mean, did everyone say pretty much the same thing? So there wasn't a question in your mind of whether it's right or not, or do you look for consensus or, or how are you dealing with notes? It's different with each, you know, with each project. Um, I do look for consensus. If there's consensus, I don't always, you know, I don't feel like obligated to, um, you know, to, to adjust according to the notes. But if there's consensus, if I send something out to four people and all of them have, you know, the same response either to the whole thing or to, you know, this particular piece, I take that very seriously because it's, you know, um, there are people who, who, who I respect as readers. Um, and I think that consensus is worth listening to. Um, the notes are different. I mean, I think, you know, um, there were my, you know, my wife, as an example, was, you know, was, was when she was like, I'm just glad I'm, it's really, I'm enjoying reading you not writing in your own voice because I, I mostly write in my own voice. Um, um, my, you know, my writer friend gave me some really good notes on pacing and, and, um, and action and kind of further developing some scenes. Um, my agent, something. So she was looking at other things, but I think they're, you know, so in this instance, the notes were, re were relatively complimentary as I don't mean, I mean, with an E rather than an I, they were not uncomplimentary, but they, they complemented one another. Um, they weren't, they didn't overlap so much because the readers were looking at different things. And that was really useful for this, um, for this book, I thought. So the publisher, Outpost 19, San Francisco, this is the first I've heard of them. And apparently they've been around for a while. About 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find them or your, did your agent find them? No, I knew about them. We, we submit, I mean, we made a list of publishers to submit to, and this was one I had, um, they used to publish early on there. So I think they've been around for about 10 years. Early on, they published an anthology series for a couple of years called the California Prose Directory. Um, and one of, in, I think the second edition of that, um, and they'd have a guest editor for for, for the book. Um, in the second edition, an essay of mine was selected and published in that book. And that was how I first heard of them. And then as it turns out, um, this was after the fact, a friend of mine from high school, my baby writing buddy, like we used to wander around high school talking about how we were going to be professional writers. And we actually both did become professional writers. Um, he had published a novel with them that he sent me. And I thought, you know, that's a really interesting coincidence because I just, you know, I just found out about this publisher from California Prose Directory. So I read his novel, which I liked, and then I sort of looked up the website to see what else they were doing. And I've read a couple of, you know, some of their other books. I thought they were, they had a really interesting list and they're edgy and the book is edgy. So I thought um, that was one reason that I, I, uh, I wanted to send the book to them. Um, I also really like, I mean, we submitted to a variety of publishers, but I really like working with independent publishers, um, probably the most, because I think that, you know, they're, 
they're, you know, they have, they have their own sense of vision. They are less tied. I mean, they definitely have their own marketplace concerns, but they're less tied to the marketplace or they're more able to take risks or um, worry less about the kind of marketplace concerns we were talking about earlier. Um, and they're nimble, you know, so in this instance, um, we could make changes easily. You know, we were like, we were looking at page proofs where we were sending out galleys and I would say, oh, there's a typo on this. We could like, you know, change it. And within an hour, I would get a PDF with a, you know, an updated PDF that I could, that we could send out. Um, you know, in terms of cover design, you know, I had full input on cover, on copy, on all of that stuff, you know, cover copy, catalog copy. And, you know, we literally, the publisher and I sat down, I think we had a Zoom and we talked, you know, sort of atmospherics of the cover. Um, and they presented me with, I think, like 20, 30 different cover um, options. This one we came to because I said, you know, at one point I said, you know, like the vibe of an old Blue Note album cover. And he was like, all right, I'm on it. And this is what he came up with. I think it's a fantastic cover. I can say that because I had nothing to do with it, you know, um, but it's it's kind of perfect for what the book for what the book is. And so I really like that kind of the flexibility of independent press. And I like the one-on-one -on -one nature. And I'm not dealing with, you know, with a, with a corporate structure. I'm dealing with a couple of individuals and um, that definitely suits my, that suits me better. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm happy to have discovered the press through you. And the cover also reminds me of, I don't know if you watched Mad Men, but mm -hmm. you know, the opening credits where yeah. you through the, yeah, no, it's definitely got that. It's definitely got that feeling to it, too. Um, and I do. I mean, granted, it's a book that takes place in a kind of quasi contemporary world. Right. It's it's you know, there's no covid in the book, but, you know, it, it could be right around the corner or it could have just passed or whatever. But I definitely with, you know, both in terms of the genre callbacks and in terms of the musical callbacks in the book and other things, I really wanted it to kind of reach back to that, you know, that other era, 40s, 50s, early 60s kind of um sensibility and so um yeah i was glad to have that as part of the um part of the design that's great so we have a couple of minutes left and i wonder um we usually end with uh with the the author talking about um any sort of pearls of wisdom or tips for the writers listening and i wonder if you have any i mean the only pearls of wisdom i have which it's funny i i i <laughs> Is, but the only pearls of wisdom I have are, you know, first of all, read, read all the time, read widely, read curiously, follow your own instincts. Don't listen to, you know, don't, you know, don't, don't listen to anyone else's idea of what you should be reading or of what the canon is or any of that kind of thing. Um, you know, if you want to, you know, read, I, I don't really believe in genre distinctions. I know they exist, but I mean, for me, it's, you know, art is art and, you know, a novel is a novel and it's got to, you know, so, so don't worry about that stuff. And the other thing, which is what I always tell my students is don't listen to anyone who tells you, you can't do it. Um, just, just, you know, because if you do, you won't do it. And there'll be plenty of people who tell you you can't do it because it's hard. But if you don't believe in yourself, then it will never happen if you're if you're starting or if you're emerging. And I think maybe the last thing is um, trust your instincts. You know, when I'm writing, um, I'm, you know, I'm trying to trust my instincts. As I said, I never I've never written a book like this before. I may not ever write a book like this again. I kind of like that each book is different in its way. But each time I sit down I have to sort of figure out where, not figure out where I want to go before I go. I figure out where I want to go by starting to go. So don't wait, don't hesitate, you know, start writing. Don't worry about what it looks like. The first draft is supposed to be a mess. 
And, you know, the most important thing to do is to get um, words down on the page. Nicholson Baker once said, and I think it's absolutely true, that the most important thing is to finish, finish the draft, because you can't make it better. You can't revise it unless you finish the draft. You're not going to do anything with a half manuscript. So finish <laughs> the manuscript and then see what you and see what you want to do. But get out of your own, get out of your own way, whatever tricks you can tell yourself um, to get out of your own way. Uh, that's that's my big piece of advice. Great. Thank you so much, David. I really Oh, Barbara. Thank you. I really I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen and a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who helped to make this show possible. Thank you to Travis Barrett who does our music and sound editing. And by the way, if you like the music you hear on the show, you can find an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. Search out the artist called Just My Type. Travis also has other music on there under his name. You can access our archive of shows 25 years worth at writersonwriting.com. If you want to get in touch with us, email writersonwritingpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach Travis Barrett at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. And in the meantime... Remember to stay in the chair.